today, I want to continue in our message uh, and in our sermon series titled Jesus, Son of God, Suffering Servant, and Savior of Sinners from Mark chapter 9. Today, Mark chapter 9, verse 50. In our Bibles. 49 and 50 still, actually. Okay. Salted with fire. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 49 of Mark chapter 9, everyone will be salted with fire. What a startling statement. <laughs> we looked at it last week, as you know. In other words, every disciple of Jesus will be tested and purified, salted, by the fire of trials. This is an important truth about following Jesus that every Christian believer must understand. There is a cost associated with following Jesus as a disciple, and the cost is high. In fact, the cost of discipleship is 100% of everything. Do we have faith to surrender 100% of everything to the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, there's an old song that goes something like this, 99 and a half won't do. Not with God. For God is owed everything, for God owns everything, and his salvation of us is 100%, not partial, not even 99 and a half, but 100%. How much have we surrendered or how much we have surrendered will be tested. I mean, it's easy to talk about surrendering to God. And it's easy to talk about surrendering everything. But actual surrender is the issue. How much have we surrendered or how much we have surrendered will be tested. Lots of people claim to follow Jesus, but will they go all the way? Are we committed to go all the way with Jesus? Jesus is for real. Are we for real with Jesus? You know, I have learned that many folks are long on talking about Jesus, but short on walking with Jesus. <laughs> the authenticity of our faith and trust in Jesus will be tested and tried by fire. How we respond tells the truth about whether we are authentic followers of Christ or not. Listen, 
If our faith withers in the fire, then it was worthless from the start. But if our faith withstands the fire, then it will come forth purer than gold. Let me say that again. If our faith withers in the fire, then it was worthless from the start. But if our faith withstands the fire, then it will come forth purer than gold. If we endure, our endurance proves that our faith in Jesus is real and not imaginary. Scripture in the book of 2 Timothy, if you have your Bibles, turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, toward the end of the New Testament, by the way, if, you, if you're looking to find it, toward the end of the New Testament, near the back of your Bible, if you will. Scripture in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13 says this. Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. You see, if we endure, then we will also reign with him. But if we are faithless, nevertheless, he remains faithful. For even if we were to disown him, God cannot disown himself. And we who are authentic followers of Jesus will not disown him either. If we possess authentic Christian faith, we will endure the fires of testing, trials, and suffering. Our faith will grow stronger and God will be glorified. Because that's actually what it's really about ultimately is the glory of God. If our faith is not real, then we will not stand the tests. Let us pray that we will be found faithful as the Lord is faithful. May we maintain our saltiness whenever we are going through the fire. Now, speaking of saltiness, Jesus goes on to say in verse 50 of Mark chapter 9, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. You know, sometimes we speak about saltiness these days referring to a person who has a bad attitude. <laughs> I'm sure most, if not all of us, are familiar with this. Yeah, the, the social media glossary on Google defines it this way. The term salty 
is commonly used in slang to describe someone who is behaving or expressing themselves in a resentful, bitter, or irritated manner. It's often used to describe someone who is being overly sensitive, defensive, or angry, particularly in response to criticism or perceived slights, end quote. Hmm. I liked that definition when I came across it, and that's the reason I wanted to quote it, because I think we can all identify with the use of this term, saltiness, today. You know, when we, can, you know, we say about each other, something, you know what, he's a little salty, she's a little salty. This is well known. But this is not the kind of saltiness that Jesus is referring to in Mark 9.50. Jesus is referring to saltiness in a Christian manner. Salt is good as long as it maintains its saltiness. Faith is good as long as it maintains its faithfulness. Belief is good as long as it keeps believing. Trust in the Lord is good as long as we keep trusting the Lord. Faith is no longer good if it no longer believes God, if it no longer trusts in the Lord, just like salt is no good if it is no longer salty. Jesus poses a rhetorical question here about salt. If it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? We should be aware that a rhetorical question usually carries an obvious answer. Can salt that has lost its saltiness ever be made salty again? The answer is no, according to what Jesus said elsewhere in the Bible. In Matthew 5.13, during his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. These are the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 13. Right at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And in Luke chapter 14, verses 34 to 35, Jesus said, salt is good. But if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? But he goes on. It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Robert Stein writes, and I quote him, in Palestine, Saltless salt, often a mixture of salt and impurities such as gypsum, was mined from the Dead Sea and frequently appeared perfect, as perfectly good salt. Yet such saltless salt was worse than useless, for it was not only unusable, but also presented a disposal problem, end quote. 
And that's actually what Jesus is referring to in Luke chapter 14, verse 35, when he says, saltless salt is neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. You can't even use it for things you would ordinarily dispose of. You can't even dispose of it in the ordinary ways that you might, neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It's that bad. It's that useless. Hmm. Salt is worthless if it is no longer salty. Saltless salt is so worthless that Jesus said it is neither fit for the soil or the manure pile, but it's to be thrown out. Listen, Christianity is worthless if it ceases to be distinctly Christ-like. Christianity, I, yes, it's true. Christianity is worthless if it ceases to be distinctly Christ-like. Our Christianity is worthless if it ceases to be distinctly Christ-like. Saltiness, salty, in a Christian way. You know, these days it seems like there are too many people claiming to be Christian without being distinctively Christ-like. This kind of, I'm going to coin a word here, this kind of unchristlike Christianity is like saltless salt. In other words, it is worthless. It is utterly worthless. An unchristlike Christianity is the same as a Christless Christianity, which is no Christianity at all. Christianity without Christ-likeness is a con. And people who call themselves Christians but are not Christ-like are con artists. That's the way you live? Then you're not the real deal. And you need to know it. Faith without faithlessness and fruitlessness is false. You know, Jesus has no patience for trees that do not bear fruit. Remember in the time leading up to uh, his crucifixion, he walks past a tree just outside the city of Jerusalem that looks good. Its leaves look really good and fruitful. He walks up to the tree, finds nothing there. And then he curses the fig tree. And the fig tree withers. Now it is, it is an example of the fruitlessness of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and the people in it. <laughs> God takes no pleasure in faithlessness and fruitlessness. So faith without faithfulness and fruitfulness is false. That's all there is to it. But Jesus said, if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? This leads to the question, how can salt lose its saltiness? Hmm. How can Christians lose our saltiness? Hmm. 
Well, okay, let's talk about that for a minute. Saul can become contaminated with impurities that cause it to lose its saltiness and render it ineffective. So too can Christians become, or at least those who claim to be Christians, can become contaminated with spiritual, doctrinal, and moral impurities that, and, and sinfulness that cause us to lose our saltiness or to lose our effectiveness. Christians can lose our saltiness in some of the ways that we have already seen in the disciples in Mark chapters 8 and 9 already. We've been walking together. Here we are at the end of Mark chapter 9. We've already been through Mark chapter 8 and every other chapter in Mark thus far. But let me give you some examples. So, for example, in Mark chapter 8, verse 14, Jesus warned the disciples to be to beware of the corrupting influences of the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and King Herod. The disciples completely misunderstand what Jesus meant. And he became exasperated with their spiritual blindness in Mark chapter 8, verses 17 to 18. What does he say to them? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Isn't Jesus talking to his disciples? You see, failure to rightly understand the teachings of Jesus will cause us to lose our saltiness. Rightly understanding the word of Christ begins with the commitment to obey the teachings of his word first and foremost. In other words, having a heart committed to obeying the word of God is the key to understanding the word of God. Yeah. Understanding the word of God is based on obedience and obedience is based on faith. That's where, for example, in the book of Romans, Paul writes about the obedience of faith. There is no such thing as genuine faith apart from obedience to the Lord. You say you have faith in God, then you will obey. Oh, yes, I know we sin and we can stumble in many ways. The Bible makes that clear. We recognize that, but no, no, no. You, you will repent and return to the Lord if you belong to him, even if you stumble and falter along the way. Why? Because genuine faith expresses itself in obedience, you see. Faith is willing to obey the word of God even before reading or hearing the word of God. And this is the key to a deeper understanding of the word. People will often say, well, I can't obey something I don't understand. Well, you ain't going to understand it unless you're first willing to obey it. You'll never understand it. If you don't come to the word of God with a willing heart of obedience, 
You won't understand what you're reading. You, you may understand the language you're reading. You won't understand the biblical and theological truths found in the words of Scripture. They won't make sense to you. You won't even remember them. After all, if you don't care to obey, then you'll lose it as fast as you read it or as fast as you hear it. You know, there are people who sit in church Sunday after Sunday, year after year, decade after decade, and listen to the faithful preaching of God's word. And by the time they walked out onto the parking lot to get in their car, they've lost all of it. It doesn't go home with them. It doesn't even get in the car and drive with them where they're going. They, before they get out the door, it's real good. They didn't forgot it. It rolled off of them like water off of a duck's back. Nothing sunk in. And as a result, they never change, never grow, never gain any wisdom, never grow in wisdom and insight, just grow older in age and closer to eternity, a Christless eternity, I might add, even though they were in church all their lives. You know, some of the worst howls of eternity will be people screaming from a burning hell who grew up in church all their lives and heard it all and refused to believe and obey it. Please do not let that be your story. Because if you lose your soul, oh, by the way, there is nobody, not a single soul ever, that is lost, that doesn't deserve it. It's what the angel says to John, the apostle in the book of Revelation, they deserved it. Your wickedness deserved it. Listen, salvation is not deserved by us, nor can it be earned by us. It is earned, it was earned by Jesus at the cross and the resurrection. It is freely given to us by God's grace. It's offered to us and for all who repent and receive it. But it's not earned, nor is it owed to us. Those who die without the Lord deserve what they get. And we would have deserved the same were it not for God's grace to us, motivated by his love for us. And the only thing I can tell you is this. If you have a problem with that, it's because of the pride lodged in your own soul. In Mark chapter 8, verses 17 to 18, Jesus scolded the disciples because of their lack of faith, which caused their failure to understand. If you do not trust God by faith, then you will fail to understand the spiritual truths of the word of God and the teachings of Jesus. Later in Mark chapter 8, we see another example of how we can lose our saltiness as disciples if we're not careful. Simon Peter, who had a stroke of divine revelation in Mark 8, 29, when he confessed Jesus to be the son of God, 
then almost immediately failed to believe what Jesus went on to say about his mission of going to the cross to die and rising from the dead in verses 31 to 33 of Mark chapter 8. We were there. We walked through that episode together, brothers and sisters. And you remember, Peter refused to believe Jesus when he first predicted here in Mark chapter 8 his death and resurrection. Why? Because Peter was only interested in the pursuit of an earthly kingdom, not the real reason Jesus had come into the world. What was the real reason? The real reason was the kingdom of God through the suffering, sacrificial death, and resurrection of the Son of God. Peter didn't want to hear that. In fact, when Jesus said to them what was going to happen, Peter revealed to Jesus for it. You see, when we focus our lives merely on earthly pursuits, which are soon passing away, we fail to focus on things that are most important to our Savior. For example, advancing the kingdom of God through the spreading of the gospel of Christ and the suffering of Christ and service to Christ. We too often spend the bulk of our lives trying to build personal kingdoms for ourselves instead of expanding our lives helping to build the kingdom of God through Christ's church. By the way, life is short. Now, those of you who are younger may not feel that way because you're young. But some of us can tell you, some of us who've lived a little while, life is short. If you were, by the way, to live to be 70 years of age, let's assume you had 70 years, and then your life would be done. By the time you get to 35, you're already halfway there. If you were to live to be 80 years, by the time you get 40, you're halfway there. Think about it. <laughs> I had an old friend who used to say, he was much older than me, he was a friend of our family, and back, way back in the 1970s, he used to say to me, man, I'm on the backside of 30. And I used to say, the backside of 30, which to me at the time was up there. Man, I'm on the backside of 30. He said, you know, when you get on the backside of 30, you're going downhill. I'm like, are you serious? Yeah, man, you're on the backside of 30. <laughs> I didn't understand the significance of what he meant, you see, because I was a youngster at the time. But I thought, well, yeah, you're old on the backside of 30 as far as I'm concerned. But the way you're talking about it, until somewhere after I grew older to realize that, well, he was right. Actually, by the time he hit 35, and if my memory is correct, I, I can't remember how many years he actually lived, but I think he died before 70. Yeah, he was already well halfway beyond halfway at the time. And he wasn't saved, and neither was I, by the way. And I don't know if, if he ever did trust Christ, by the way. 
I know I started preaching to him when the Lord saved me. But I don't know that he ever actually repented. But he did know this. He knew that he was already over the hump. <laughs> we ought to commit ourselves more seriously with whatever time God has graciously given to us, seeking more ways to help build God's kingdom through sharing the message of Christ, spreading the gospel through suffering, sacrifice, and service. You only have a short time. By the way, I said 70, you know, um, I can think of plenty of people who didn't make it past 50. Well, at that point, 25 is your halfway point. Well, like one friend I had, I recall, a friend wrote me recently and he said, man, you remember him? How old was he when he died? I said, well, let me calculate it. I said, you know what? That was 41 years ago and he was 41 years of age at the time. Which basically meant that 20 and a half, he was halfway through his life already. He didn't know it. Since you and I don't know how much time God has allotted to us, we might already be on the other side of that hill, even at a young age. So with whatever time God has given graciously to us, it's to be dedicated to him. Since he, he's the one who gave us life and gave us the time. And listen, God didn't promise that you and I would live to be 70, 80, 90, or 100 years old. It's a blessing if we do. But if you're in Christ, it's a blessing even if we don't. If you are not in Christ, then time is working against you. Your time is running out. So what are you going to do? With the sands of the hourglass working against you. Whenever we fail to focus on the cross of Christ, we can lose our saltiness. Whenever we get fixated on the things of this world, that we're not going to be here very long in the first place, whenever we get fixated on the things of this world and not on Christ, we can lose our saltiness. Whenever we misplace our priorities as Christian believers, we can lose our saltiness. Jesus said, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Still other examples of how we can lose our saltiness are, are found in Mark chapter 9. Where Jesus, for example, in verses 2 through 12, took Peter, James, and John with him on a mountaintop. Remember that? We were there. We walked through that episode together of saints. And Jesus was divinely transfigured before their eyes while he, Jesus, met with two of the most important saints in the Old Testament. You remember who they were? Moses and Elijah. Jesus met with on the mountain as Jesus was transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John. But on the way down from that mountaintop experience, the three disciples became distracted with questions about Elijah 
instead of focusing on Jesus' divine transfiguration. <laughs> they failed to focus on Jesus and instead got themselves distracted by arguing about Elijah. The one far more important than Elijah was among them, and they were missing the most important point about the person of Jesus Christ. They got to see Jesus transfigured before their eyes, and they want to argue and debate about Elijah. Yes, Elijah was there on the mountaintop meeting with Jesus. Elijah wasn't the most important one. Moses was there. Moses was not the most important one. It was Jesus who was transfigured there as he met with Moses and Elijah on the mountaintop. And Peter, James, and John, because of their lack of spiritual understanding, missed it and got distracted on arguments about Elijah. Oh, there's a lesson in this for us too, you know. When we focus on everything but the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we can lose our saltiness. In Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, the disciples get into an argument about who was the greatest among them. Remember that one? <laughs> and in verses 38 to 41, they attempted to stop someone else who was faithfully serving Jesus, but who was not a part of their group. Whenever pride, self-centeredness, jealousy, and competition poison our relationships with one another, we lose our saltiness. And causing someone else or causing ourselves to fall into sin is another way to lose our saltiness, according to Jesus in verses 42 to 48. Mm. Finally, brothers and sisters, whenever there is tension, dissension, confusion, and conflict, instead of peace among Christians, we lose our saltiness. We lose our effectiveness in this world. We lose our tastefulness. Who wants salt that doesn't taste like salt? In the last half of verse 50 here in Mark chapter 9, Jesus commands the disciples, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, when Jesus says, have salt among yourselves, he means be at peace with one another. You see that? This is why you have to pay attention to scripture when you read it. When he says, have salt among yourselves, he means be at peace with one another. Peace with God, peace within, and peace with one another is the way to maintain our saltiness, you see. Salt is an excellent metaphor because it is a purifying and, and cleansing agent. To have salt among we ourselves as Christians is to relate to one another in the spirit of peace, which is the Holy Spirit whom Christ has given us. 
Ephesians chapter 4, verses 2 through 3, uh, teaches us to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. He goes on. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, 1, 2, and 3. So having humility, gentleness, patience, and love is the same as having salt among ourselves. These are spiritual qualities which create peace in our relationships. While situations may not always be peaceful, we are commanded to make every effort to be peaceful in how we relate to one another as God's children. It was Jesus who said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So let us beware of losing our saltiness. Let us strive to maintain our saltiness with everyone always. Let us maintain our saltiness by being at peace with one another as Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14 commands, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Let us maintain our saltiness as scripture instructs us to do in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 5 and following says this of Ephesians 4. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Oh, that's significant. The Lord is near. Jesus is coming. Again. Soon. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your minds and your hearts in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4. But it goes on. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, is whatever is true as opposed to false, whatever is noble and honorable as opposed to not honorable, whatever is right as opposed to whatever is wrong, whatever is pure as opposed to whatever is impure, whatever is lovely as opposed to that which is hateful, and, and whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. Think about such things. But he goes on. Whatever you have learned or received 
or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. See, that's what we need. We need good examples of peacemakers and peacemaking in the church. Not, not, listen, I didn't say appeasers. Some people think appeasement is peacemaking. Appeasement is not peacemaking. Appeasement seldom solves anything permanently. Appeasement may quiet things down for the moment, but doesn't resolve anything ultimately. No, no, no. Peacemakers, that's hard work. It's extremely hard work. And peacemakers don't give up easily. That's another thing. Many people would like to be peacemakers, but they just don't seem to have the will and the fortitude and the endurance to stay with it long enough to have an impact. You see, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you have to keep coming with the peace. You have to keep coming practicing peace. See, peace is something we practice, not just something we aspire to. Many people aspire to peace but don't do anything to actually practice it. And many of us don't do anything to actually practice it because we haven't had very many good examples in our lives of peacemaking in the first place. We've had too many examples of people who will practice appeasement instead of peacemaking. Too many people who will run away when things get tough because they can't handle it. That's not peacemaking. That's not peacemaking. Listen, peacemakers, by God's grace, that's the operative phrase, by God's grace, are able to withstand the warring and worrisome attitudes of people who need to submit themselves to peace instead of war. Listen, if you're going to be a peacemaker, guess what? You're going to find yourself in the middle of warring people and warring parties. There ain't no such thing as peacemakers among those who are already at peace. Everybody who's already at peace don't need peacemaking. The ones at war are the ones who need peacemakers. And peacemakers have to have courage. Peacemakers have to have courage to tell people who are mad, angry, fighting, and ready to burn everything down, no, you cannot do this. No, it is wrong. Peacemakers have to have the strength to say no, no, stop, no. <laughs> you have to do this with your children if you're a parent. When they start warring amongst themselves, you have to have, you have to be the parent, the mature one, and have the strength and maturity to say, stop it, enough already. You be quiet, you be quiet, and all of you listen. Now, there are lots of people who don't like this. Lots of people who don't like peacemakers. Because peacemakers will get you told with the truth. Peacemakers won't tolerate lies, nor will peacemakers tolerate liars. And peacemakers will not appease liars.
No, you're lying. <laughs> and we can't have peace as long as you keep lying. Paul says here, writing to the Philippians, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me. So Paul was an example for them of peacemaking and, and of practicing the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Remember, we're talking about a divine peace here. We're not talking about human peace. We're not talking about man's peace. We're not talking about human diplomacy. We're talking about Divine peace, it's a peace, it's a, it's a peace which surpasses all understanding. In other words, that people come to a place and a point of peace when nobody is able to explain how that happened except God. Because they were at such odds with one another, so torn apart and destroyed and torn up among themselves, there was no way they could come to peace on their own. Only God could do it. It's a peace which surpasses all comprehension, which surpasses all understanding. Jesus is telling the disciples here, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. And listen, if you don't think Jesus was strong, then you have to go back and remember earlier in Mark chapter 9 when they were arguing amongst themselves about who's greatest. They were arguing amongst themselves about it. They didn't want Jesus to hear what they were fighting about. So when they got to their, their destination, Jesus, <laughs> Jesus startled them by asking them, what were you all arguing about on the way back there? Then they realized they were found out. They thought they had gotten away with their little fight and conflict among themselves and concealed it from Jesus. When they, in fact, had not concealed anything from Jesus, he knew exactly what they were doing. He knew exactly what they were arguing about, and he called them out on it when they got to their destination. What were y'all talking about back there? What were you arguing about? Mm. Is Jesus being a peacemaker there? Yes, he is. He confronts them about their conflict. They weren't going to say anything to him about it. They were going to conceal it from him. No, Jesus said, no, no, no. What were you all arguing about? Let me get all of you straight. God, listen, we need more examples of peacemakers and those who live and strive for peace and who will make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace in the Lord's church. By God's grace, you know, I like to say that because it's all about God's grace. Amen. See, by God's grace. God has been gracious to us as a congregation. And boy, am I thankful. Because there has not always been peace. But you know what? God will have nothing but peace. <laughs> and the pastor will have nothing but peace too. If you want to be toxic and you want to start trouble, get out and don't come back. I'll preach to a handful of people and trust God to take care of us than a church full of people who want to fight and act a fool. Not on my watch, not during my season, 